0: LinkedIn
1: Presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, your brain on music. In 1983, a 25-year-old kid went down into the basement of his Minnesota home and recorded an album. These days, of course, anyone with GarageBand could make a halfway decent song. But like I said, this was 83, the analog era. If you wanted drums, you had to play drums. If you wanted a guitar solo, well, you had to shred on your own. If you wanted to edit what you'd recorded, you couldn't just press a few keys on your keyboard. You had to use a razor blade to cut the tape and then splice it back together with scotch tape. So the fact that this young guy had the technical chops, the musical abilities, and the initiative to record music was pretty impressive. What's truly remarkable, though, is that the music he made sounded like this. That's right. The 25-year-old kid was Prince. And he wasn't alone down there in the basement. He had a recording engineer with him, another 20-something, named Susan Rogers. A recording engineer is a master in the art of manipulating sound. They can take this. Add some drums. Mix in vocals, and you get... That's Prince's 1985 hit, Raspberry Beret, engineered by Susan Rogers. It's among the dozens of iconic songs the two of them made together in the 80s. Susan went on to have an illustrious career in the music biz. She worked with David Byrne, co-produced the Bare Naked Ladies smash hit One Week. These artists didn't turn to her because she was an expert at theory or some sort of musical virtuoso. She couldn't even play an instrument what she could do was listen. She was able to open her ears, let sounds wash over her, and then push them around, brighten the vocals, say, or darken the drums in a way that made whatever song she was listening to better. As her career advanced, Susan began to wonder what was going on neurologically when she listened. Where did her perceptions, reactions, and feelings come from? Why did she respond to music the way she did? Why does anyone? Those questions got so loud in her mind, and her need to answer them grew so strong that in her mid-40s, she quit making records and went back to school, ultimately earning a PhD in psychology. She's now a professor at Berklee College of Music and the author of a new book called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. It was chosen by our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink as one of the eight best nonfiction books published last year. Today's episode is a little different and I think pretty special. Susan sat down with our producer and fellow music nerd, Caleb, and they were joined by Daniel Levitin, a previous guest on this show, one of my favorites. He's the author of the Runaway New York Times bestseller, This Is Your Brain on Music. He was also Susan's PhD advisor. They talk about what music has meant to their lives, debate what makes a generic artist different from a great one, and best of all, share some of their favorite records.
2: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more.
3: Susan, take us back to 1983. You are in your 20s. You're living in L.A., And you get a call from, I think, an ex-boyfriend, and he tells you about a job opportunity. What happened next?
2: I was working for Crosby, Stills & Nash in Hollywood as their studio maintenance tech, keeping the studio running. And uh, I get this phone call from my friend at Westlake Audio, and he said in his thick Boston accent, Sue, your dream job is waiting for you. Prince is looking for a technician. Well, that was great, because Prince was my favorite artist in the world. I was a technician. And uh, I thought that job was meant for me. I was interviewed and I got the gig and I moved, left everyone I'd ever known, uh, left California, went to work for Prince in 1983. He was just wrapping up the 1999 tour. He had gotten the green light to do the Purple Rain movie. And he was, uh, he'd already started work on a Purple Rain album and it was a very exciting time. He had just turned 25 years old. And I had just turned 27, so we were all pretty young at that time.
3: That's amazing. And so you ended up collaborating with Prince on, on the Purple Rain record, and I think you you two worked together almost through the the entirety of the 80s, right, into sort of 87, 88?
2: Yeah, we were together. It was just a little over four years, but we packed 20 years worth of work into that time because he was so prolific. Dan, I,
0: I'm seeing you have a question. <laughs> I'm holding up my hand, teacher. Uh, <laughs> You know, I've known a lot of maintenance engineers and I can't think of a single one who transitioned to being a first engineer. How did that happen? I mean, usually the maintenance engineer isn't supposed to have an opinion about the artistic side of things, not even supposed to have an opinion about which mic to use or where to place it. That would just be really gauche. And so at some point, though, he must have in. Intuited. The great one must have intuited that you had some skill outside of your job description.
2: Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, I I appreciate that. That's exactly what happened. Maintenance technicians stay in their lane. They are people who repair the equipment, and they're in the studio when everyone else is gone. Uh, But Prince transitioned me from that role of being his maintenance tech into being his engineer. It's well known that Prince just didn't like to talk a lot, and he sure as hell didn't make a lot of small talk. So if he had someone he was familiar with in the room who already knew all the signal flow, why not just have that person stay on the job and just carry on? And uh, the first time uh, he asked me to set up a microphone... I asked him, where shall I place it? It was a small home studio, but I didn't know where where he wanted it. There was no ISO room. And I said, where would you like me to put it? And he said, in front of my mouth. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) (laughs) that's how this is going to go. All right, I see. (laughs) And and, and then the subtext there was, figure it out. Don't ask me everything. That's how you had to be with him.
0: A lot of people just make records. You create sonic environments, you create soundscapes, you create entire auditory worlds. And you don't do that just by sticking a microphone in front of someone's mouth.
2: Yeah, that's exactly true. Everyone who makes a record, producer, engineer, mixer, artist, we say that they each have their own sonic signature. And what that means is just like what a painter does with oil on canvas, you're pushing sound around to get it to behave in a way that strikes you as good. The great record producer Greg Wells came to Berkeley a few years ago, and he said to the kids, he said, you guys sitting here today, you have no idea how good good is. Good is ridiculously good. But we all have our own customized notion of what's perfect, what's just right for a sound for a mix, for depth of field, for staging in a record? Do you want this record to be uh, realistic or do you want this record to send the listener's mind somewhere else? So yeah, you develop your sonic signature and there's, frankly, I think there's not that much you can do about it in terms of forcing yourself to paint like someone else, you've got your own internal artistry. So your, your sonic signature is going to find a way to express itself for better and for worse in everything you do.
3: I love that, that phrase, Dan, just use sonic environments. And you have this sort of 20 year arc of creating sonic environments, first with Prince and then with other artists like David Byrne, the Naked Ladies. And then at age 44, you head off in a surprising different direction
2: It had been coming for a little while. I entered my career as a record maker um, because I felt kind of a calling. And my mind, my my fantasizing mind was always imagining being in the studio. I I, I pictured the players and the performers. And it's a really good life when your body can be where your mind is, when your fantasies can, can come to life. And I was able to make that happen in the music business. I fantasized about being in the studio and I was able to, to, to put myself there. Uh, in my late thirties, my fantasies began changing and, uh, began thinking, you know, I think I would really enjoy staring through the lenses of a microscope or looking at spreadsheets of data and exploring questions about the natural world. By the time I was in my early 40s, it became really clear that I, I really wanted a life as a scientist. I wanted to be in a laboratory. So once again, I had to figure out a way to get my body to be where my mind was.
3: And it's just remarkable. I uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you finish your high school degree, finish your undergraduate degree and then enroll in a PhD program. And all of that begins in your mid-40s.
2: Yeah, exactly. I had dropped out of high school when I was a teenager and got married, and that was kind of ill-fated. But uh, once I got past all that, I did have to do that. Uh, I went from being a professional record maker for over 22 years to earning a GED first off, getting into the University of Minnesota, going to McGill, doing eight straight years of college, and getting that
3: PhD. Incredible. Okay, so now it's the, I think, early 2000s. You're at McGill. You're studying with Dr. Daniel Levitin. And Dan, where are you at this point? I think it's maybe 04, 05. You're you're working on a book at this point, aren't you?
0: Yeah. So, you know, in in an interesting parallel, I had been in the music business, not reaching nearly the heights or the uh, cleverness or artistry that Susan had, but I'd been kicking around in it for until I was 34. When I was 34, I decided to go, actually 35, I decided to go and get my PhD. And so this kindred spirit, I certainly knew Susan's work. We had never met. Everybody knew Susan's uh, engineering work and her work with Prince and admired it. And so I don't remember whether you called or emailed, but you somehow got in touch and asked if I would take you on as a student. And it was a bad time for me to take a student because um, I didn't yet have tenure. And having students usually takes time away from publishing. And you have to publish a certain amount of papers to get uh, tenure. And also, an editor had reached out to me and asked if I would write a book about music and the brain, which eventually became This Is Your Brain on Music, but I was way behind, I procrastinated, and I had like seven months to write this whole book. But when you came along, I just, I thought this was kismet, and I just wanted to have the opportunity to work with you. And from my perspective, it wasn't so much as me as a a teacher, it was us as collaborators from the start, figuring out uh, research projects that interested us both.
2: Yeah, and I felt that compatibility from the very beginning. In fact, the reason I chose your love was that I thought this guy, he's been in the music business. He'll know what I know, and he'll know how to... tap into some knowledge or experience that I might have that can help out in scientific investigation. You know, Dan, I get asked this question and I bet you do a lot too. Sometimes people want to know if you're exploring the human brain music connection, doesn't it kind of dilute the mystery of music? Doesn't it cause you to maybe not like it as much? I don't know about you, but I think I know what the answer is. For me personally, my love for music has never gone away. And the more I've learned about what the brain is doing while it's processing music, the more I love it even more, because you think about all those 100 billion neurons in an infinite variety of connections, and there's all these circuits, and there are nuclei, and you put on a record, and you've got a pattern of neural activation going on up there in your brain, this pattern of neural activation think of all the responses you have to it. Think of the visualizations. Your mind can start to fantasize and think about the way your body can move to it. Think about the emotions. Of course, that's what music is optimized for the feelings that you have, the thoughts you have, the fantasies you have, and the, the many, many ways you just get rewarded. From that, and and it, it, could there be a more delightful mystery to
0: explore? I don't think so. I, I think it's really like learning anything. Uh, I I remember being four years old and seeing people play the piano, and they just sort of seem to move their hands up and down in what see you know looked to me like a random order and I finally sat at a piano and I did that and it sounded terrible. <laughs> and, you know, they're not just doing anything, they're, they're doing something in particular. And it's not just that, it's woodworking. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you see somebody use a table saw and a drill press and, and they make a, a cabinet that seems very simple, but then you realize, oh, there, there is a lot to this and this could become a life's work. And understanding it doesn't make it any less interesting. In fact, For me, it's always been like a game of whack-a-mole, where just when I think I've understood one mystery, five more pop up, and they're more fascinating than the last.
2: Yeah, there are so many mysteries involved in music in the brain. to me, though, (laughs) the most exciting one to think about is that love at first listen experience. How that happens is so extraordinary to me, but it does happen. You put a record on or someone plays something for you or you're out there in the world and you hear something for the first time that stops you in your tracks and makes you think, this is what I'm talking about.
0: What's the first record that did that to you?
2: The very first? It may have been, there were a lot right around the same time. It may have been Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown. Those horns come in, and the guitar. It lifted me up above Motown. Motown's great, and I love Motown and the R&B and soul records. It was all fine, but I kind of had the sneaking suspicion that there was something else out there that might be just a little bit more suited to my ear. I didn't know any of this, but I just had that feeling like this is good but dot 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 and then when i heard papa's got a brand new bag by james brown i realized oh yeah that's that's the thing that's the thing i was missing
0: what record did that for you well i i I have to answer it in two phases and by the way for people who are listening to us here on the next big idea so much of what we're talking about is in your book and Mm -hmm. uh I tell people who say, oh, I haven't read your book, This is Your Brain on Music, and I say, don't. You ought to read Susan's book. Oh, no. <laughs>
2: yes. No, you got You got to read them in order. Dan's it, book. No, no, or... no, no.
0: Yours, yours just captures so much uh, of the uh, – it's a more personal way of thinking about music listening, uh, with, but still has all of the science in it. It's a, an extraordinary achievement. At any rate, I'm going to dither a bit because there are two answers. There's the first record I hear, I remember hearing as a really young kiddo and, and being just enamored of it. And it was Frank Duvall's orchestra playing the syncopated clock, if you know that record. It's from the 40s, and uh, it's kind of a novelty record. Uh, It had this great melody, uh, but then I think the next record that really grabbed me at love at first listen was um, Rolling Stones. cluster of songs, Painted Black, Ruby Tuesday, Satisfaction, all came out around the same time, or at least in my memory they did, uh, and they grabbed me. But interestingly, this love at first sight that you're fascinated with, I'm fascinated with the opposite of cases where I really did not like something and resisted it, and, and then it became one of my favorite things. I remember hearing Magical Mystery Tour, and I thought, "Oh, that that just sounds really weird. I don't ever want to hear that band again." And uh, and then I put together, "Well, that's the same band that." saying, I want to hold your hand, and I never wanted to hear that again. And I had then, some years later, in 1973, I heard Steely Dan's Countdown to Ecstasy. I remember
2: the sweet goodbyes.
0: And I thought, Ugh, I, I never want to hear that singer again. And uh, it was uh, a strange thing because both of those artists, Steely Dan and the Beatles, uh, it took a while, but they became among my favorites. I can't explain how I can reconcile that with my Rolling Stones and my Frank Duvall experience because I love those just as much as I ever did.
2: But disliking, a strong dislike is still a hedonistic response, a strong response where you say, I'm feeling something and it's in the negative direction, but it's uh, closer, I think, to love than to just meh. The reaction of this does absolutely nothing for me. At least you preheated the oven when you're hearing something that you really dislike. And you can, I think, as you're describing, you can transition from uh, I dislike this into I like it. I want to share something with you that I just learned about the other day. So I was on a podcast and the host, Brett McKay, on the Art of Manliness podcast had a confession. He really liked Muzak elevator music." (laughs) And I said, we've got to talk about this because I've never heard of anyone liking this music. This music is deliberately designed to be ignored. It's written and composed and arranged and performed to be not liked, not attended to. How do you like this music? And he said, well, I confess, part of it is nostalgia, but he said, I really listened to it a few times. And I realized, you know what, I think I kind of like it. I, I love how when we get older, it's delightful when the list of things we hate can get shorter. It's a really good thing. And ever since uh, Brett told me this about liking Muzak, now I'm going to listen to it with fresh ears. And I'm going to see, are there any treats in there? Is there any way of discovering something that's maybe appealing to me? I assume that that's what your brain did with both Steely Dan and and, and with others, you, you were, uh, the Beatles, you were open-minded enough to say, whoa whoa, 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 there must be something here. If I just listen a little longer and a little deeper, if I just give it another
0: shot, I might hear many others hear." I wasn't open-minded, but oh. it, because it was being played so much around me, it insinuated itself. And my brain started processing it. And I think what was going on was that there were just sounds and moves uh, that my brain wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. And just through passive listening, it worked it out and then made sense of it. And I think all this underscores the old saying that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Right. Uh, I was never indifferent about those.
2: Yeah. I like the quote from the biologist P.B. Medawar, who said, the human brain treats a, a, a new stimulus the way a human body treats a new protein, initially you reject it. It's new, it's novel, you reject it because you think it's not familiar enough and I don't want to approach this object. But if you see that others are approaching the object and it's working out really well for them, they're actually really fond of it, then you can sometimes overcome your timidity give it another shot. And eventually you may open up those circuits that allow you to receive a little hit of uh, dopamine or opiates that would cause you to say, you know what? That actually felt pretty good. That wasn't a bad experience after all. I'm going to move this stimulus from the category of hate it over to the category of, well, it's not bad. And then eventually that can turn into love.
3: You know what's interesting about that music that that guy who loves muzak and I'm just sort of I'm imagining him like intentionally going to the nearby Marriott and just riding the elevator up and down and up and down so he can listen to Girl from Ipanema instrumental. <laughs> but it actually brings up this point about place and music, right? That the, the the thing about muzak is it's meant to you you encounter it in these sort of innocuous environments in an elevator in a shopping mall. But I'm wondering about the ways in which where you first encounter a song, who you're with, what you're doing. Are you, are you listening to it on vinyl, sitting around a table? Are you listening on headphones alone in a dark room? How does that influence that love at first listen, that, that sense of place and, and maybe community you're with?
2: Good, good, good point. Context always matters. And the great songwriters, Bob Dylan, or any of the other great ones, will describe being under the influence when they were four, five, six years old of music that was on the radio. So imagine this let's say you're four years old and you're in the car and you're going with your family. Maybe you're going to Disneyland or you're going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and you feel great. You feel great. You're safe, you're taken care of, you're loved, a happy thing. It's going to happen. Everyone's getting along and the radio is there and a certain song comes on At that moment. You're automatically going to encode those feel-good neurotransmitters that are coursing through your system with that pattern of activity that corresponds to that song. Little bits, little bits of bonding can happen in that moment. You might not be consciously aware of that song. You might not have a memory of it. But imagine years later, you hear that song in the radio. It has the potential to trigger just a wee little release of a little bit of uh, feel-good neurotransmitters that can help you feel better in the moment. And you think to yourself, I like this song. As we say in the arts, though, everything influences you. Everything influences you. So, of course, you're going to be influenced by the music in your environment during both happy, angry sad, and, and all kinds of uh, emotional experiences. Every song you
1: hear is filtered through every song you've ever heard in your life. Coming up, Susan explains why novelty can make a song better, and Dan describes the traits that make a true musician and a true writer. We'll be right back.
2: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: So you went to graduate school, gradual school, (laughs) and you worked on uh, research. You want to talk a little bit about that? So my doctoral thesis was concerned with the
2: origins of the distinction between consonants and dissonance. Why are some chords considered to be perfect? and others are considered diabolus in musica the devil uh, What does the brain care? Does the brain make a, a difference a distinction between those two I looked at that and I looked at auditory short-term memory and as we talked about earlier all it did was deepen the mystery. so unusual things cause our brains to hang on to them a little bit longer in some cases because we need to figure out what was that so for songwriters and musicians who might be listening when you use an unusual, chord, kind of chord you don't hear every day. When you throw in an unexpected inversion, we put in something that we weren't expecting to have happen, our brains are going to be motivated to automatically think, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what was that now? And you won't think that consciously necessarily, but your brain is hanging on to that object a little bit longer. If that happens too often, it becomes aversive. That music just becomes too novel, too cognitively taxing. But if it can happen once or twice in the course of a, a nice pop song, you're intrigued and interested enough. So it, it did inform my thinking of music and music listening.
0: Your command of the research literature is enviable, and your ability to express yourself in writing is just superb. You can close your ears, but I'll tell the audience, Susan uh, manages to be very rigorous and accurate with the science, but in a way that doesn't make it seem like you're reading about science. It's very conversational and fun and engaging. Dan, thank
2: you for the praise, but don't forget you're the one who taught me.
0: (laughs) You didn't need a whole lot of teaching.
2: You had those writing labs where we would practice writing. And still to this day I fantasize when I when I read something that's really, really great. I fantasize, wow, I wish I had been able to write that well when I was in Dan's lab.
0: It's I a learning same, process. I have the same feeling. I, I read other writers and I go, wow, I, I want to I want a little bit of that. I think you know, a true writer like a true musician, you never you're never really happy with what comes out there are constraints of practicality and deadlines and don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. But it's why Dylan almost never sings the lyrics exactly the same way. I don't think it's that he's forgetting them. I think that he's reimagining, well, if I had it to do over again.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I uh, want to put this on the table for us to riff on. The other day I listened to Two new albums, new to me, they're fairly recent, back-to-back, because I discovered these new artists that I like. One is Curtis Harding, who I instantly loved. The record came out in 2017. That's the one I listened to. I love Curtis Harding. I followed that with an artist named Sun Little, also a fairly recent record, and they were both good. Now, because I was listening on Apple Music, As soon as I finished playing those records, it just automatically called up a playlist and added, well, okay, you like that. So here's some music you're probably going to like too. And it played just artist after artist after artist and all in the same R&B, modern R&B vein. And when I liked something, I'd go over and look at it and see. oh, okay, I'm remembering the name of that artist. But here's what it got me thinking. There was one artist in particular who's got a voice that's very similar to Beyoncé Very similar. Her vocal timbre, style, very similar to Beyonce. But she's not Beyonce. And when I would go to look at it, asking myself, is this Beyonce? It doesn't sound quite up to her level. I'd go and look and, and I'd see that, no, indeed, it was not Beyonce. It made me think about music and its similarities with fashion. So you go shopping for clothes, you get yourself into a Macy's or a Kohl's or wherever it is people go for clothes, and you go shopping and you see nice things and you say, okay, this will work, this is good, this stuff will work for me, and you buy it and you take it home. But if you've got an important job or, or an event or something, you're going to kick it up a notch and you're going to go to Saks Fifth Avenue or someplace that's a little bit, bit nicer and spend a little bit more money. When you look at the clothes at Saks Fifth Avenue, they're nicer they're better. It's better materials, it's better made, it's more expensive, it's better style, but there's a noticeable difference in the quality. Then, should you find yourself uh, pretty flush and you want to get yourself to Burberry's or Louis Vuitton or anything like that, you're going to find clothing that's even more expensive and better. It seems to me that now with the advent of our tools and with people able to self-publish their own music, We've got more music than ever before out there, and 99.5% of what I listened to yesterday over six, seven hours of constant music listening was okay. It was Macy's, and some pieces were uh, Saks Fifth Avenue worthy. I don't think a lot of people recognize that the music that's at the top of our Billboard charts is made by quite a few really smart and skilled people. Uh, those those pieces don't rise to the top of the charts by accident.
0: I'm glad you brought this up because I have a different, but I believe, complementary perspective. So certainly uh, the people who succeed and have more than just, say, one hit, you know, the, the people who have a career, mm-hmm. they are really talented and they work really hard and the quality tends to be very high, not in every single case, but tends to be. But that doesn't mean that having that much talent and care and quality will get you to the top. It doesn't work that way at all. For every Eric Clapton, there are a thousand guitarists who are as good as Eric himself says this as good as creative, as innovative but you just don't hear them. They haven't passed through the turnstiles of the music business, or maybe they don't have it together enough to show up and sign the contract or or whatever. Maybe they don't have the fire in their belly to do what's necessary. But complementary to that, I think is the the Beyonce sound-alike problem, which is that in general, the people that make it to the top don't sound like anyone else. And as soon as you hear them, you go, that is something different. So if somebody comes along who sounds like Beyonce, or sounds like Adele, or sounds like Jay Z, we already have those artists. We don't need a sound alike, we want somebody who's new. And you know, in our generation, Susan, when Springsteen came along, or Tom Petty,
3: there was nothing like that. And Tom Petty had no choice but to sound like Tom Petty. And we now live in a world where with the advent of digital recording technology, it's very easy to make yourself sound like Tom Petty. Oh, I want to get that exact guitar sound. I can do that in Pro Tools. Oh, I want my voice to, I want to change how I hit that note. I can i can auto-tune that. And I'd love for, for you, Susan, and, and for both of you to talk a little bit about how the advent of that technology has changed the game, maybe for better, maybe for worse.
2: Yeah, let's go back to the clothing analogy. Man, I think about 150, 200 years ago, um, only a select few could afford well-made tailored clothing and uh, nearly everyone uh, just not only sewed together burlap bags or flower sacks or whatever it was they did in order to have something to wear. Um, with the advent of new technology and society's advance now, There's mass-produced clothing. Everybody's got clothing. And likewise, everyone has the tools in order to make music, and many of them are making music. What this has done is, in part, it's changed our concept of what music is, and it's becoming a little bit less of a refined art and more of just a practical utility in our lives. This is going to, by necessity, change music's form a little bit. Uh, Producers will be making records that are a little bit more utilitarian than art-based in nature. And that's progress, and it's going to go the way that it goes. What do you think about that, Dan?
0: I think about the kind of paintings that you see in a Holiday Inn or a Best Western or something on the walls. They're kind of generic. And so... It's easy enough now to make those kinds of things, but real artists are still going to try and do something that is different and that takes some time and some design. And so on the one hand, I'm thrilled that more people can make music. I love the idea that the average person doesn't now have to spend 20 years learning to play a musical instrument before they can have fun. And of course, that, that was the whole, that's what punk was all about, right? It was, I, I just want to bang something, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, the idea that millions more people now can make music right out of the box, I think is great. The only problem we have that we didn't have before is a, what I would, you'll relate to this, Susan, a signal-to-noise problem. There's so much more to choose from. It used to be that if you bought something on Warner Brothers, you didn't know if you liked it, but you knew the quality would be good. You could trust that the Warner Brothers imprint or any number of imprints meant something. Columbia meant something. Columbia, was the, it was the label home of Dylan and Springsteen and Billy Joel. Frank Sinatra. And, yeah, Sinatra. Sinatra and uh, Aretha Franklin, Simon Garfunkel. It meant something. Now, the way we consume music, it's you know it's all sort of in a, a a big lotto bin and you're pulling out one number at a time and hoping that you get a winning number. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that part's harder, and we have to figure out how to fix that. It's more on the distribution side. but I really do believe that it hasn't changed the way creative people work or think because they're the ones who don't want to do what's done before. Prince did not want to just do what somebody had done before. Can you imagine Prince playing in a cover band in a Holiday Inn? That's not him.
2: I've seen Prince play in a Holiday Inn, and I've I've heard him do cover versions, so I can kind of imagine it. Yeah, another thing that's missing in this great equation is A&R, artist and repertoire. If you're signed to a record label, as you had to be in the old days, there was an A&R person, like an editor at a publishing house, that uh, honed your work and got it ready for the spotlight of attention. These days, many people are just self-publishing, so to speak, and they don't have that person to dress up their work and get it. The term I like to use is record ready. Artist development has disappeared, and a lot of folks are making a record, but they're not necessarily record ready just yet. You're right, though, artists will always be creative and listeners will always seek melody, will always seek rhythm, will always love harmony, will always respond to clever lyrics. Music isn't going to become unrecognizable anytime soon.
1: Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Susan and Dan share their favorite songs. One, two, three. We put a lot of love into these episodes. And when I say we, I mean my producer, Caleb. And when I say love, I mean, he uses a digital scalpel to excise all of my ums and ahs, my stumbles and stammers. That's right, folks. I'm not as naturally silver-tongued as these episodes would have you believe. A lot of the time, I sound like this. So, so this, this, um, this personal, uh, I'm gonna start that again. Um, I am grateful for all the work Caleb does to make me sound better. And if you are too, one way you can show that gratitude is by downloading the next big idea app. There you'll find ad free versions of this podcast, hundreds of book summaries written and read by the world's leading nonfiction authors, a new one every single day. Plus there are masterclass style video e-courses and exclusive conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink. All of this content is beautifully edited by our entire team and these folks, well, they like to be paid. So your support is deeply appreciated. Getting smart fast has never sounded so good. Search for the next big idea in your app store today.
0: Speaking of records, do you have a favorite record you would play for me and talk me through?
2: (laughs) I got an awful lot of favorite records, but if we were going to play something that illustrated our own... uh, listener profile. uh, I can go right to Al Green's Call Me, Come Back Home. My favorite drummer in the whole world, the late Al Jackson Jr. is playing drums on this. And that big deep dish snare and where it hits, the evenness of his dynamics, Al's crooning up there on top, Teeny Hodges on guitar. This record is my idea of perfection. oh and the end when it goes to the breakdown at the end oh just so strong i could listen to that guitar every single day and never tire of it i love how the strings are high and the background vocals are high and al's voice is high and then that snare is deep I love the vertical sonority of it. Of course, I I, I love nearly every aspect of it. It doesn't do everything for me, uh, but that's the whole point of having a listener profile with a lot of sweet spots on it. Some of your records are going to please you for their sound, and some will please you for their lyrics, and some will please you for their groove. If you can hit more than one sweet spot, as this record does, you've got a record you love for life.
0: What's your choice? What would you like to play? I have a rather odd choice because it's not a record. I met a guy who's now my friend named Jeff Silbar. And, uh, Jeff is a songwriter and I enjoyed his company. I didn't know much about his songwriting. And then I found out that he had written a song that became a very, very big hit called, uh, wind beneath my wings. Now, in ASCAP's ranking of the most performed songs ever, number one is Happy Birthday. Number two is My Girl, followed by White Christmas and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Number five is Wind Beneath My Wings. Wow. Wow. That is a big song. And it's a song I had mostly ignored and because I found I apologize to anybody uh, who feels otherwise, but musical taste is is very personal. I found the Bette Midler version cheesy and overdone, and maybe it was authentic to Bette, but it wasn't what I wanted to hear. And There there are a few other big production versions of it, Um, but I really like Jeff, and I like the other songs he had written, which are more in the Guy Clark or uh, Bruce Springsteen Nebraska, you know, mm-hmm. one voice, one guitar, that kind of place, mm-hmm. which for me, for for my listener profile is authenticity. And so I found, well, I guess it's a recording, but it's not a record of Jeff doing this live. And this was how he intended the song to be. This is the songwriter of Wind Beneath My Wings playing it the way he wrote it and the way he intended it. And then all the other stuff came later. And when I heard that, my jaw dropped. I had no idea it was such an amazing song. And so it's really the opposite case where production gets in the way of the song. And you hear it here, I hope. Did you ever know that you are my hero?
2: You're everything I'd like to be. That is an interesting question that record producers have to consider. So you've got the chord changes, you've got the melody, you've got the words. What's the best form this this raw material can take to connect with people? Because
0: you are the wind beneath my wings.
2: Now, someone wants to tell you something. And they want to show you how passionate they are, how much they believe this. And they can practically shout it to you. They can give you a giant Valentine's card or balloons or flowers. Believe me, I'm crazy about you. A big statement. Okay, great. I guess you really mean it. Or they can get quiet and they can say in all sincerity, deep in the chest, do you know how much I care?
0: And okay. they, can whisper it, they can whisper it in your ear instead of shouting it over a bullhorn.
2: Right. And now, now, now the, the, the dilemma, of course, is we've got to sell records. Larger productions are more likely to attract a lot of people. People who don't, and there are many of them, who don't pay a lot of attention to music. And sometimes you do have to make a big gesture, an ornate gesture, in order to get heard. So good for Bette Midler. It worked. She had a huge hit. Good for Jeff in that he's able to express the genesis of the feeling that gave rise to those chord changes and that melody and those
0: words do you know the engineer Gabe Veltri no Gabe hadn't heard of Selbar but I played him this and of course he 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 knew he thought he knew the song when I said the title and he 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 said i had no idea that that's what this song was mm. and he said What if there are millions of people who feel the way Gabe and you and I and Caleb feel about that soft whispering version? They feel that way about the big production version, right? They hear the intimacy and the beauty, and they only hear it in the big version. And we only hear it in the stripped down version. Mm -hmm. That, That kind of put it in perspective for me. It's different strokes for different folks.
2: And what you need, how you need music to function for you. I don't know this firsthand, but I'm told that a lot of people like this, that the Bette Midler version of the record to be played at their weddings. It's a, it's a big oh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And anniversaries. Yes. And, and And that's the big statement. That would yeah. feel pretty inappropriate if it were the smaller statement. It would be used differently. The smaller statement is you used know in it wasn't private. Enough. Yeah, it's used in private. So it's an important distinction, I think, when we think about music, is to consider how its form serves its function. What do you want this record to do when it gets out there in the world? Good for Jeff uh, that what this record did was make him an awful lot of money. Uh, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah,
3: Daniel Levitin, Susan Rogers. It's just been amazing. I could listen to the two of you talk all day. You're like the Lennon McCartney of music cognition. It's just been fantastic. Thanks for sharing your or thoughts.
0: the uh, Richards and Jagger and Richards. I had it in the wrong order. But yeah, the Jagger and Richards.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: Along <laughs> may they reign. And by the way, let me say, every time I talk with you, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm always. Uh, I've got my antennae fully extended because I still... Oh, you're my favorite Martian. Yes, I still learn so much from you. You're so good at what you do, and uh, I admire the hell out of you. So thank you for taking time this morning to do
0: this for us. I feel the same way about you, Susan.
2: Well, thank you.
1: That was Susan Rogers, author of the new book, This Is What It Sounds Like, speaking with Daniel Levitin and Caleb Bissinger. Susan recently made a beautiful video e-course about her book, and it's only available in the Next Big Idea app. To access it, all you have to do is go to your app store and search for The Next Big Idea. And once you've got the app downloaded, you'll also be able to listen to an ad-free version of Dan's previous appearance on this podcast. That episode is called Successful Aging, How to Live a Full Long Life, one of my favorite conversations. What are your favorite songs? I'd love to know. If you wanna share them, sign up for our newsletter on LinkedIn and leave a comment in the post for this episode. The newsletter is called The Next Big Idea, and you can find it by searching for me, Rufus Griscom, That's G-R-I-S-C-O-M on LinkedIn. Speaking of LinkedIn, we recently launched a new podcast with the great folks at the LinkedIn Podcast Network. The show is called The Next Big Idea Daily. Every day, in just minutes, you'll get a masterclass in better, smarter living from the world's best writers. Follow it wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Tota. The Next Big Idea is produced in partnership with LinkedIn Presents. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.